So we are starting a new section today. We just finished Bibliology, a section where we covered the nature of the Bible. That took six, eight weeks, something like that. And now we're starting the section you see up at the top of page 33, section 7, the nature of salvation. And this will take longer than six to eight weeks. There are many questions that come up uh, during this section. We will cover all sorts of things about uh, the nature of man, the nature of God, and to the best of our ability and as far as God has explained it in His Word, we'll talk about how that works. How does man get saved? That's a tough one, isn't it? Well, in one way, it, very is, it really is simple. It's very, very simple. And what's the simple answer? Hey, yeah, you, you receive Jesus Christ. But why do some people receive him and others don't? Is that God's choice or their choice? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. All right, see? We'll talk about that for a while. <clears throat> but we're, we're going to be there in a few weeks. We're not there yet, all right? So um, today, you see, we're talking about salvation before Jesus. And so we'll get into that uh, here in just a moment, but I'd like to open with a word of prayer. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've made and this time that we have together. We thank you for the opportunity to look into your word and see what it is that you have said. Help us to learn and grow and apply what we learn today by your Spirit's power, that we would not just grow in head knowledge, but that our hearts would be drawn closer to you. Help us, Lord, to uh, really get a lot out of this study, to have good conversation together, and to have a blessed fellowship under the banner of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here's the question. As we start off talking about salvation before Jesus, here's the question. How were people saved before Jesus came to earth? Let's go ahead and get some answers floating around the room here. How were people saved before Jesus came to earth? Okay, two people spoke at once, and I didn't understand either one of you. <laughs> the law? Okay, there's one possibility. Mandy, what were you saying? Okay, now we have two different answers, don't we? Interesting. Anybody else want to chime in? Okay, there's a, uh, Rex is saying, they were, yeah, there's, okay, you got the priest there in Israel, and you've got, uh, some forgiveness going on, but was it permanent forgiveness? Yeah, how does that work? Okay. What else? What other thoughts you got? This is good. This is good. Okay. So Stan is pointing to uh, the Word of God was still around. There was still Scripture. There was revelation that was given from generation to generation. What was the content of that, of that Word or that Scripture that they were to believe in? Because remember, this is before Jesus, before... Mary was giving birth to Jesus. What was going on? And what a great demonstration of imputation here that Mike took their shames. He did the walk of shame for them. He took their shame and bore their sorrows. <laughs> Good job, Mike. Good illustration. What, what, um, what were they believing in? What was the substance? Because, you know, today we have the gospel message. Jesus died and rose again. Mandy. Okay, so they were looking forward to the Messiah who was coming. That's good. Anything else? 
<laughs> yeah, sorry. <clears throat> so Rex is pointing to Yom Kippur. You'll see that on your calendars that you buy, the holiday Yom Kippur. And how many of us even <laughs> really know what that means, right? And they put it on the calendar, and it's like, okay, what is that? The death of the goat, sure, yeah. <clears throat> well, it is tied back to what the Old Testament calls the Day of Atonement. And that's in Leviticus 16. And that was a day, a very important day, once a year, where they would perform certain sacrifices. And we will get to that soon. So you've got the Word of God being passed down, the prophecies about the coming Messiah, the sacrifices that are being made. You also have the law. You also have people being called to faith. And you got all this stuff going on in the Old Testament before Jesus, and we need to kind of straighten this out a little bit. We need to figure out uh, the role of these things, okay? So let's uh, get a, our bearings here a little bit. You see at the top of your sheet, before we get into looking at certain passages, I want to talk about anthropology. That was a section we covered earlier, which is the study of the nature of man. Okay, we began that on page 11. Back on page 11, we began that section. And so I want us to <clears throat> remind ourselves here of a few things. First is that our gospel is only as good as our beliefs about who man is. That's your first blank there at the top of the sheet. Our gospel is only as good as our beliefs about who man is. And that'll be demonstrated here in just a moment as we look at different views that people have taken through history about the nature of man and how deeply man has been affected by sin. Because if you believe, we'll take an extreme example, if you believe that sin doesn't really affect us at all, what kind of gospel are you going to come out with there? Yeah, that's right. You, you don't even need a gospel at that point, right? If, if sin isn't a problem, you need no solution. But if you view sin as a really, really deep problem, okay, well now that's going to require a more complex solution to answer all of those deep problems, okay? So our gospel is only as good as our beliefs about who man is. And then if we're deficient in our understanding of the nature of sin, another blank for you to fill in, we'll be deficient in our understanding of the nature of salvation. Our understanding of the nature of sin goes hand in hand with our understanding of the nature of salvation, right? Sin, small problem, then salvation is a small thing. Sin, big problem, salvation is going to be a big thing. Okay, that's, that's the difference there. Anthony Hokema, in his book, Created in God's Image, he said, original sin includes both guilt and pollution. By original guilt, we mean that we deserve condemnation because Adam, our head and representative, broke God's law. We can define original pollution as the corruption of our nature that is the result of sin and produces sin. Now, when he says God law, God's law there, he's obviously not talking about the law of Moses. Adam didn't have the law of Moses. Paul even says that in Romans chapter 5. But when he says God's law here, he's referencing just the commands of God. And Adam did have commands from God, and he broke them. So when Adam, who was our head and representative, broke God's commands, when he disobeyed, when he rebelled, there was guilt and pollution that has come in to corrupt the human nature, corrupted Adam and Eve. Something about them immaterially, they're made in God's image, something about that has been messed up. Now, the image of God hasn't been wiped away, 
the image of God still abides in every single human being. But now the image of God has been polluted, corrupted. There's guilt from conception on behalf of every single human being because our original parents rebelled. Okay? Now, if you take that view of sin, now your view of salvation is just going to have to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Philip Hughes says, Original sin tells us that there is an inner root of sinfulness which corrupts man's true nature and from which his sinful deeds spring. Like a deadly poison, sin has penetrated to and infected the very center of man's being. Hence, his need for the total experience of rebirth by which the restoration of his true manhood is affected. That should be with an A, I believe. Uh, affected instead of effected, but that's probably my fault. Philip Hughes is English. He's, he's a British guy, so it's probably not his fault. I probably messed that up. <clears throat> so if you have this view of sin and how man is corrupted by sin, if that's your understanding that's up here on the screen, is it possible to be saved by your works? Hey, see how our view of sin now touches our view of salvation? Is it possible to be saved from birth, if that's your view of sin? No. Okay, so you're not saved from birth, and your works can't cause you to be born again. So now our options for how man gets saved here are you know, starting to get limited, and our understanding of how salvation affects the whole person is being affected too. Let me give you three viewpoints. You see them there on your sheet, and then I'll stop after this and <clears throat> see if you guys have any thoughts or questions. I want to introduce to you Pelagianism, Semi-Pelagianism, and Calvinism. These are views that are named after a guy, or after two guys. One was Pelagius, and he lived a, quite a long time ago. And another is, of course, Calvin, John Calvin. He lived also quite a long time ago. And uh, these are hot-button words, hot-button terms when it comes to doctrine and theology. But don't go so far down the road, if you know a little bit about Calvinism, for example, don't go so far down the road to where you're thinking about things I'm not presenting to you today, okay? I'm presenting to you one aspect of the whole big picture, and we'll get to the other aspects later, okay? Well, Pelagianism teaches this. Humans are born into a state of innocence and can obey God. Adam only gives us a bad example. Okay, so human beings are basically good. Children born into the world are completely, totally innocent, and they can obey God. Now, if this is the view that you hold, that's going to affect your view of salvation. But I'm just going to present these in order here, and then we'll, we'll kick them around a little bit. So Adam doesn't give them a sin nature from, from Adam. They don't have a sin nature passed down. Adam gives them a bad example, though, not an actual corrupted, guilty nature. That's Pelagianism, and you could say one extreme. Semi-Pelagianism tries to take the edge off of that a little bit, and it says humans are born slanted towards sin, but they can cooperate with God, and Adam's sin is still not imputed to them. Adam's sin, it doesn't touch them so deeply that they're corrupted from conception necessarily, but they, they do have something in them that's off where they're slanted towards sin. They, they favor sin, but they can still cooperate with God. Okay, so they're not totally corrupted. They're just like semi-corrupted. They're not totally good. They're just semi-good. So you see, semi-Pelagianism is trying to play both sides of this a little bit. And then on the other side, you have the Calvinistic view. 
Humans are born completely depraved. They are enemies of God, and they are legal recipients of Adam's sin and its effects. Now, that time effect is to be spelled with an E, so I got that one right that time. All right. Humans are born completely depraved, enemies of God, legal recipients of Adam's sin and its effects. So that goes back to Adam is the representative head of mankind. And as our representative, he fell, and when he fell, we all fell. Just like when our elected officials, say uh, senators from the state of Utah, go to the Capitol and they vote in favor of something or against something, it could be rightly said that Utah is in favor of this or Utah is against that. Well, you say, I didn't vote on that. Yeah, but your representative did. When our Congress as a whole declares that they're going to go to war, it can be rightly said that America has declared war on fill in the blank. You say, I'm an American and I didn't declare war on anybody, but your representatives did. And so the same sort of idea is being presented here where Adam was our legal representative and therefore we are legal recipients of Adam's sin and its effects uh, from conception. Okay, so there are three views for you. Thoughts or questions on how... People have articulated this through history. Well, since, no, oh, now we have two. Okay, no, no, I started a sentence, so let me finish this thought before I forget it. And then we'll do Shauna and then Dean. All right, so number one, um, when we start talking about this subject in matters of, um, this is all going to touch on human freedom and God's sovereignty type stuff here, right? You're already probably starting to sense that a little bit. Like, okay, if we take this view then no one's free. We're all just, we're saying everybody's locked up, everyone's bound, everyone's guilty, and there's no, like, freedom. Um, what you need to do for yourself is constantly preach to yourself, it's not about what I want it to be, it's not about what I feel it to be, it's about what God has said. That every topic of all of, in all of life, actually, that's just a good rule of thumb, but, uh, but especially this study, as we talk about salvation, keep telling yourself what does the Word of God say? So when we're dealing with infants, that one is simpler than the other, okay? The, the more difficult one is where you start getting, yeah, like toddlers through elementary age, it's like, okay, what's going on there? And that's why I think so many people create an age of accountability. The Bible doesn't give us one, but some people create them, and that kind of gives them comfort, like, okay, at least I got a cutoff in my head, you know? But you can't do that because you're going beyond what God has said, okay? So, so with infants, <clears throat> there are two passages I like to go to. One is uh, where David, after his child with Bathsheba dies, David says that uh, this child will not return to me, but I will go to him. And David had a view that he was going to be with God forever. David did not have a view that he was going to hell. David didn't have a view he was going to live in eternal condemnation, all right? So he had this understanding that God had spared that child. Another passage is in Deuteronomy chapter 1. And they're talking about the children who are entering the uh, promised land. You have, you have three generations, or well, two main generations. Um, you've got uh, one generation that had no faith. We'll do, do uh, Gen 1 and Gen 2. Um, they had no faith, so they were all unallowed, disallowed, to go into the promised land, save Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb had faith. They were allowed to go into the promised land. But in Deuteronomy chapter 1, you have this explanation as to why 
these children were able to go. And it's all of the children, all of the children of that generation were able to go in. And it says, because whenever this first generation showed their lack of faith by saying, you know, we can't kill those enemies. They're huge. We can't do that. We need to not go take the promised land. We need to disobey God because otherwise we'll die if we try to obey God. They showed a lack of faith. While they were doing that, their children, many of them were already born. And it says in Deuteronomy 1, these children who today, they don't know their right hand from their left. They're going to be allowed to go into the promised land. Actually, it says they have no knowledge of good or evil. It's a different place in the Bible. It says they don't know their right hand from their left. Uh, but there's, there's this age that is, uh, and again, there's no cutoff. There's this time of life when God says they're not accountable in the same way that other human beings are because they don't have the appropriate knowledge. Now, I think it'll vary from child to child as to when that child is able to do that. Or, I mean, you think, take a, a special needs child, a chi- uh, someone with Down syndrome who's an adult. How does God deal with that? Well, he just doesn't say um, exactly how all that shakes out. When it comes to end times, we don't, say, we don't get a list of, okay, here, the, the wheat and the tares, you know, the wheat is all believers in Christ. The tares are uh, those who have rejected Christ. When Jesus comes back, he's going to sort the wheat from the tares. But also in the wheat are, you know, some kids who haven't believed yet and some special needs. It just doesn't say that. So we have to really, really rely by faith in the fact that God is sovereignly good and never makes a mistake. And that's just where we end. Dean. So, um, let's see. Pelagianism. Proof text for Pelagianism. Uh, Okay, yeah, here's one. Here's one that a church member just asked me about recently. Uh, Let's turn there. 2 Samuel, chapter... 22, I believe. I'm try, trying to remember this because there are so many twos. Second Samuel 22, and I think it was even like verse 22 or 21. Yeah, let's start in verse 21. And this was uh, asked by a church member, like earlier this week or no, it was last week. Um, you always feel free to send me questions when you have questions about anything. Uh, Marco Polo, email, text, phone call, I don't care. You can just get a hold of me if you've got a question and you think I could help. Would love to serve you in that way. But let's have someone read 21 through 25. If you only had these five verses and you read them, you'd be like, wow, David thought pretty highly of himself, didn't he? (laughs) David here says, I've kept God's ways. I have not acted wickedly. I've, I've received a reward from God according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness. It's like, okay, this is looking pretty Pelagian. He's, he's been innocent and he's been able to obey God. Adam gave him a bad example, but he rejected Adam's bad example. Well, uh, context is always important, isn't it? We just talked about this the last couple of weeks with hermeneutics. Context is important. Uh, Realtors will say location, 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 the three most important rules. Well, it's kind of the same thing in the Bible. Context, context, context. The location of the text. You get to examine the location and see what's going on. So remember, David is the one who said that in sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 51.5, okay? So um, he's the one who gave us this idea that sin goes all the way back to conception. That was David. 
So unless you think David was just like uh, schizophrenic or something, and he, you know, was, he thought he was a sinner one day and thought he was totally, you know, righteous another day in and of himself, um, that, that's, we got to figure out what's going on. And basically the context of this is David here is talking about his enemies who are after him, who are slandering him. At this point in David's life, if you know the life of David, his son turned against him. He had all kinds of people turning against him um, where he was a king without a country, essentially. And the slander was flying that he was a wicked man, that he treated people unfairly, yada, yada, yada. And so David here is calling back on not the total of his life and saying, I've been innocent from birth and I've been obeying God from birth. He knew that he sinned with Bathsheba and killed Uriah. He knows these things. He's saying in the context of dealing with his enemies, he's been righteous. He has been, he's been a king of integrity in dealing with people as a king. And, and you can say that even, even when you recognize that you're a sinner and that you're a fallen person and maybe you've sinned in some really massive ways in your life, you grow by God's grace and you, you develop character as a person. And you can say, look, in this area of my life, I've been a person of integrity. And, and God is going to see my righteousness in that area and reward me. And you can say that with humility, not puffing yourself up. So that's what's going on there. Um, we'll get to the other ones. But yeah, Pelagianism, I don't know if we were going to have a passage about that. So it would be passages like this. Yeah, oh yeah, that would definitely be a place where it would say, yeah, childlike faith, look, these children... Um, now, what the person does who's using a passage like that goes beyond what it says and says, look, these children are completely innocent. Well, that's not what it says. You know, Jesus says, have faith like a child, which is a different thing. Well, it's kind of like this. Um, you know, why, why were they allowed to enter the promised land? Were they innocent? Well, in one sense, no. In another sense, yeah, kind of, right? <laughs> they had no knowledge of good or evil. And so there's, there's some level of which God um, doesn't hold them personally accountable for the cognitive function required to have genuine faith. Because an aspect of genuine faith, and we'll get to this in a few weeks, an aspect of genuine, genuine faith comes from the Latin, it's ascensus, to be able to assent, mentally assent to something. Some people reduce faith down to only that, and it's not only that, but it certainly includes that. You have to be able to, re, like if you're reading the Bible, you've got to be able to read. You gotta, or if you're hearing from your mom and dad, you have to be able to understand what they're hearing. Okay? So there's a cognitive function that's required to be able to have faith, and I think that's probably what it's pointing to. I, and I would say probably, Dean, uh, a big part of, especially as you get here, the, the semi-Pelagian view, is the narratives that we have in Scripture. Because in the narratives, what you have is God saying, um, do this, and then you have people either doing it or not doing it. And so as you just read it through... It's like, okay, well, they had, they, they had the choice, and they chose either to do it or they chose not to do it. <clears throat> and that's a totally fair reading if that's all you have. But then there are passages in Scripture that are called the didactic passages. So you've got narrative. I might use these words again, so I'll write them up here. So you've got didactic and narrative. Narrative is just the story where you have the author who is giving you the details, the who, where, who, where, what, when, how, all that stuff. Now, didactic, though, is teaching. So this is like some prophecy. This is Proverbs. This is uh, getting in, especially to the New Testament, the theology that Paul explains. And didactic gives us the behind the scenes of the narrative. 
And when someone just takes the narrative, you can, you can totally read that you know, one way or the other. That's all you have is the narrative. But then when you get into the didact didactic, you're able to take that knowledge then and go back and say, oh, okay, that's what was going on. And so when people stop short of the didactic, I think that's a big part of it too. Yeah, where it's like, okay, um, hmm, I have to choose here. And instead of saying, I don't know, but I trust God, I'm going to say, this is how it works. And then what we do is basically we can create a, an idol there where we start ascribing to God certain actions or ascribing to man certain actions that just aren't true. So yeah, that's a good point. You've got to be very careful to not exceed what is written. Don't go beyond what is written. Anything else before I move on to the next thing? Good. All right. Well, let's talk about now, again, thinking of salvation before Jesus. We've just illustrated man's got a problem here with sin. How was this being taken care of through history leading up to the time of Christ? <clears throat> As we think about salvation, it is beneficial and even necessary to study the history of sacrifice among God's people. There is no salvation apart from the shedding of blood, and the key verse for this is Hebrews 9.22. I'll read it for you, but that's essentially uh, what the verse says. You can jot this down as just a note there. Hebrews 9.22, it says, um, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without shedding of blood, forgiveness is impossible. So, it's very important for us to go back and to look at the history of sacrifice throughout the Bible, uh, starting, of course, in the Old Testament. Okay? And that's where we'll go. Oh, I got those out of order a little bit. Okay, let's go to Genesis 3.21. <sighs> Except I, I did something I didn't want to do. Nuts. Okay, let me, let me ask you anyway, where the first ever sacrifice was made... <laughs> In the Bible. Oh, yeah, okay, good job, good job. Now, I'm curious, though, how many of you would have known that without me selling the farm there. Uh, the first ever sacrifice in the Bible is found in Genesis 3. And it's really interesting, because you don't get a description of the animal. You don't get a description of how the animal died. You don't get a description of there being an altar you don't get a description of what happened to the animal afterwards. You don't get a description even of blood. I don't think there's any mention of blood. But it's there, okay? Genesis chapter 3. Let's do, um, let's start in verse 17. So we can get a little bit of the context of the curse that's going on after Adam's sin. And have someone read 17 to 21 of Genesis 3. Who's got that? Jen, go ahead. Hey, so there's the sacrifice in verse 21. The garments that he made for Adam and Eve to replace their shameful fig leaves, the garments were garments of skin. Well, to get garments of skin, something's got to die, right? So the first ever sacrifice that was made is right here. How can you describe it? I mean, we don't have a ton of detail, but how, how can you describe it to somebody if you were talking with your neighbor about the first ever sacrifice in the Bible, what would you say? 
Excellent answer, Shauna. That was very good. Yeah, I mean, why didn't God, after Adam and Eve sinned, why didn't God just crumple it up like a piece of paper, throw it all away? God demonstrates his love, doesn't he? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We get that in the New Testament with Christ. I think here you could say the same thing. God's demonstrating his love. And he's, he's bearing with fallen humanity. He's bearing with sinners. And of course, it's all for his glory. Isn't that cool? And again, we don't know what kind of animals, or if there was more than one, we just don't know. We just know there were garments of skin. The very first sacrifice in the Bible was made by God. That's just something you can take to bed with you tonight. As you hit the pillow, think about that. <laughs> they left the, the face part that they could put over their head like that too. Yeah. <laughs> God took the life of something innocent and covered guilty man with it. And this is just so important because this kind of does set up the whole big narrative of the Bible of what God is doing, doesn't it? God takes the life of an innocent creature and covers guilty man with it. Wow. Amazing stuff. Other thoughts or questions on this first sacrifice of the Bible? Again, not a lot of detail. We always wish we had more, don't we? We have enough. All right. Next page, probably, in your Bible. Genesis chapter 4. First seven verses. Someone um, read that for us. Genesis 4, 1 through 7. Who's got that? 4, 1 to 7. Mike? Thank you, sir. Okay. And then, of course, in the next verse, Cain kills Abel. Oh. Cain must have uh, just continually lived in Adam and Eve's basement because he was a man-child. <laughs> See, the importance of context, you can make the Bible say anything. Uh, <clears throat> all right. The sick, twisted brain, Virginia, I tell you. And I'm the teacher. I mean, isn't that bad? It's, uh, it's one thing for you to think it. It's another thing if I'm thinking it. All right. Well, let's make some notes here on what's going on in Genesis 4, 1 to 7. So we got offerings that show up here in Genesis 4. They're making offerings. And, and we really don't have anything between 321 and here that sets us up for this. It's just here they are making, making offerings. So the first thing, of course, to recognize, this is taking place after the fall. So the first sacrifice that was ever made was by, by God, and that was after the fall. It was to cover their shame of fallen man. So there were no sacrifices before the fall, because there was no what before the fall? No sin, and then consequently there was no, starts with a D, death. Very good. So you can't sacrifice something if there's no death, and there's, no, there's not going to be any death if there's no sin. Well, after sin, you get death, and it's not just sinful human beings dying, but the sacrifices they make. There was no commandment given in Scripture to this point regarding sacrifice. Now, it's worded this way because... Look, we just have what's in Scripture. We can't call up Cain and Abel. We can't figure this out from outside of Scripture. We just have what's in Scripture. And there's nothing in there that says they had to make a sacrifice, and here's what they had to do. Here's how often they had to do it. Here's what they had to bring, etc. Not in there. We get that later in the law, but this is something different. This is before the law of Moses, and there's no commandment given in Scripture to this point regarding sacrifice. Thirdly, there is no mention of sin alongside their actions. Now, I find that pretty fascinating. It doesn't say to atone for their sins or to make a, a guilt offering, like the language we get later in the Old Testament, or a sin offering. It's not there. 
Now, they, of course, were sinners, no doubt about that. I mean, I'm not trying to say that, I'm not being Pelagian and saying they were innocent, okay? However, we don't have sin being tied to the offering here. Was it? Maybe, but also maybe not. We just don't know. So those are three initial observations, but I'm interested if you've got any other observations or, or thoughts on this passage. It's a very interesting passage. Yes. And what was that discrepancy in Hebrews? What does it say? Now, there will be some people who will say, well, look, Abel was killing a, an, an animal, right? Or did I get it confused? Uh, Abel was, yeah, a keeper of flocks, and Cain was a tiller of the ground. And so Abel, his sacrifice was accepted because he killed an animal, and Cain's was rejected because he didn't kill an animal. He brought offering of fruit of the ground. But the Bible just never says that one was wrong. Again, there's, there's no commandment here. We can't point to some place and say they were supposed to bring an animal, but they didn't. Um, we just don't have that. But uh, <clears throat> what we do have, like Dean pointed out, in Hebrews, Abel had faith and Cain didn't. That was the difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, verse 4, that Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock. I mean, that certainly shows his faith, doesn't it? That he was willing to, to give in that way. So, yep. <laughs> Quite possibly, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, that's, that's a great question. What are their options at this point? They had a more intimate, experiential knowledge of God, I would say, than the vast majority of those who would follow after them in human history. Um, they had no one else on the face of the earth to confuse the message. All they had were their parents. And Adam and Eve, of course, were able to articulate um, where they came from. I mean, it, wouldn't that be, be pretty astounding? Put yourself in, like, Abel's position. I won't say put yourself in Cain's position. Put, put yourself in Abel's spot. You're looking at your parents, and they've got no parents. Now, for them, of course, that was their normal. That's all they knew. But for us, that is so weird. Like, no, correct, yes. Well, what'd you, what would you get for Christmas if you didn't have uh, gifts from grandparents? <laughs> and, and so there was, of course... A recognition, I would say, you would be safe with making a general statement. A recognition, there is a creator, you are not him, he has authority, you do not have authority, you are to obey God. And the commands at that point were what? To, I mean, the whole uh, Garden of Eden, Tree of Life thing's behind them, that wasn't even an option, they couldn't access that tree anymore, or the knowledge of good and evil, I mean. And so it was, be fruitful and multiply, and trust God. And I would imagine there were interactions that God had with them that we don't have in Scripture, but of course there's no way to pinpoint that. So. Well, one of the things uh, in addition to the command to be fruitful and multiply that I'm sure was passed down, you can turn back to chapter 3, um, in the middle of God cursing the serpent, you've got a promise that he does give in Genesis 3.15, and I'm, again, I'm sure Adam and Eve passed this down. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. There was a promise that was given there that God was going to bring about a seed from the woman to crush the serpent. Did they know who that seed would be? Nope. Did they know who the woman would be who would bear that seed? No. I mean, is it possible that Eve maybe thought one of her children? Yeah, I would say. And in fact, 
Um, I don't have my study Bible here with me. I'm not going to be able to say it right or a commentary. When you look at um, Noah's name, I think Noah's father was Lamech. When Noah was named, he has a name that's something to the effect of the one who will save us. I can't remember the exact terminology. But there's reason to believe, as you look at those generations in Genesis, that they were just constantly expecting the seed of the woman who was going to crush the serpent. And so there was also that that they could hold on to. And that was essentially their gospel at that point. There's coming uh, a seed from the woman who's going to crush the serpent. And that, that was something that they could have faith in. Yeah, you, you don't get skin off of an animal without blood. Yeah, yeah it's so difficult to um, fill in those blanks. Where, and we just have to, at the end of the day, just have to say, well, we just got to leave it in God's hands. Because, <laughs> I mean, you can't, you can't nail it down. And there's also this reality, too, that often throughout the Bible, the word blood is used as like a colloquial term for death itself. And uh, a number of years ago, I guess I'll tell you this, this may take us on a rabbit trail. A number of years ago, uh, John MacArthur was kind of under fire because he talked about how Jesus... Jesus' blood had nothing magical or mystical to it that especially, you know, made it possible that because of that specific blood, our sins could be washed away. It was the fact that he died in our place for our sins, that he could have been strangled in our place or suffocated in our place for our sins in the life for life, not necessarily the blood being uh, poured out. The life for life is what is what's most important. Well, you had quite a few people take issue with that because we talk about the blood all the time because the Bible talks about the blood all the time. Um, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? You know, we've got all these hymns that talk about it. Um, well, it, when the Bible talks about the shedding of blood, is it talking about specifically that blood would be poured out or is it talking about the fact that something is being killed? Yeah, or is it both? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, so that's a little bit of a, Hot button issue, you know, it's like, okay, did Abel strangle his animal or did he chop it up? I mean, what, how much blood was there? We don't know. Right. And we never have God setting minimum requirements for blood either, which is interesting. Never says, you know, there has to be, I don't think, uh, there has to be X amount of blood spilled out. Um, well, yeah, I mean, uh, you have... We'll get to it next week, I think. I think it's, yeah, on page 34, we're going to go to Leviticus 17, where it says, look, the life is in the blood. So, which is, by the way, a very scientific statement for the Bible to make back 4,000 years ago, no, 3,400 years ago, for the Bible to say that the life is in the blood, um, and it's offered on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Okay, so, yeah, interesting conversation there. Um, I got a quote here, I think, about Genesis 4. Cain and Abel. From the Kyle and Delich commentary, the offerings were expressive of gratitude to God, to whom they owed all that they had, and were associated also with the desire to secure the divine favor and blessings so that they are to be regarded not merely as thank offerings, but as supplicatory sacrifices in the wider sense of the word. And so those, that's kind of... Uh, Actually, that's one sentence, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. That's uh, commentator mumbo-jumbo. That's just, uh, you know, commentators who read the Hebrew and everything, just trying to say, look, there was, all, there was Thanksgiving and stuff going on there, too, but there's also this view that they had of God as God and we are not. We owe all that we have to God. Uh, we are showing God that 
we are pursuing him by giving him of the first of, our flo- of my flock, Abel would say, that kind of thing. And so we, we kind of take what the Bible gives us and analyze it to the best of our ability, and that's basically where it stops. Okay? Well, let's do one more before we wrap up here this morning. Genesis 8. We are now going to the post-flood world. Things have changed quite a bit in the book of Genesis. The flood has occurred, and now Noah and his family are coming off the boat. Let's actually start in verse 15. Someone want to read 15 to 22? Genesis 8, 15 to 22. Who's got that? Then we get a little poem. Like every good sermon, you've got to end it with a poem. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a cool memory verse, uh, 22. Okay. Well, let's make a few observations here. Number one, Noah's first action in the new world, the post-flood world, is a sacrificial action. To take of the clean animals, and how did Noah know what was clean and what was not? That's a whole other rabbit trail. We could go down. But he takes of the clean animals, and he makes burnt offerings. So now we have a more detailed burnt offering. Okay, His first action in the new world is sacrifice. Two... This is the first altar to appear in the Bible. At the end of verse 20, burnt offerings on the altar. Up to this point in the book of Genesis, we don't have word of an altar. So Noah, as far as we know, built the first altar, unless Abel also had an altar, or the generations after him. Number three, God accepted this sacrifice. So, Uh, Here you have this sacrificial action, and God accepts it. It was a soothing aroma, verse 21 says. And God gives us insight into his own mind where Moses was inspired to write down, the Lord said to himself. Now, if Moses wasn't inspired, that's that's a really dumb thing to try to say here, right? The Lord said to himself, so God had to tell him that he said this to himself, I will never again curse the ground. God didn't proclaim this in this verse. He didn't proclaim this to Noah or his family, but to himself. I will never again curse the ground on account of man. Uh, Is that all I had on that one? That's all I had on that one. Okay. So thoughts or questions on what's going on with Noah there in Genesis 8? Yes. That plays into our view of man and our view of the gospel, doesn't it? Yeah, so the New, America, or New International Version, the NIV, is more of a thought-for-thought translation than a word-for-word. Though there are points where it does a really good job with word-for-word. I mean, it's, it's all a spectrum, right? And it, it is kind of trying to strike a balance in the middle. Well, that's a place where it definitely went more thought-for-thought than word-for-word. Um, And they're interpreting it as, these are the thoughts of the Lord. Now, it could also be interpreted as, the Father said to the Son. The Lord said to himself. That's an option. Now, again, we don't have the detail there, but that's an option. The NIV took the option of, "Ah, these are just God's thoughts. Uh, And New American Standard, perhaps, is taking the view of, one member of the Trinity said to another member of the Trinity. Other thoughts or questions? Genesis 8. Well, we've looked at three sacrifices in the Bible, and we haven't even made it to the double-digit chapters yet. 
Next week, we will start with Genesis 22. So if you want just a little assignment for yourself, you can read Genesis 22 or listen to Genesis 22 this week and kind of get prepared for that. That's the event with Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. So now we're kind of really shifting gears here on the sacrifices. We went from animals to Abraham being directly commanded by God to sacrifice his only son. Wow. All right, well, let's pray and uh, go on to the next thing. Lord, again, we come to you thankful for the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, that you would send your son who was in the likeness of flesh, who was living a life among us, and he lived the only perfect life and died the only undeserving death. Lord, we ask that you would teach us more and more about this gospel, that it would take deeper root in our hearts, and that we would bear much fruit for you. Help us today as we go on to the next service to learn and grow, to be encouraged by our singing together and by our time of prayer, that we would be drawn nearer to you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name.